0: Um, and it's great to see so many uh, new faces, and uh, and old ones too. So uh, welcome back if you've been away on holidays, or I haven't been to Cornerstone for some time. Uh, My name's Simon, uh, and I'm an elder here, and I'm very nervous. Um, I have not (laughs) preached. Um, I've preached once before, and they never let me back again. So (laughs) that was 15 years ago. And uh, it really struck me preparing uh, a sermon that, Uh, It's not like any old normal speech. It's it's God's word, and I feel very um, uh, I feel very nervous about not mucking it up and honouring the words and the power of the Holy Spirit that's in in the word. So would you pray with me, and uh, that we might get the most out of today? Uh, Lord, I do thank you so much for this morning, for this opportunity, for this freedom, and even though uh, we might be nervous. Uh, or, um, or away, we might feel distant. Lord, I pray that your word speaks loudly this morning. It is so clear to us. And that your Holy Spirit does the work, uh, even if I don't get it right. Lord, I pray that your spirit works in our hearts and in our minds. That we'll be able to push distractions away. And that the, the message will be truly encouraging, or perhaps... Uh, exhort us to do more. Uh, Lord, I pray that the example of David is one uh, that we can bring uh, close to home into our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so when I was about five years old, I lived with my family on Bougainville Island. Now, before any jokes about the flannel curtain, it's actually somewhere up near New Guinea, uh, Solomon Islands. I lived there for about two years, Uh, because my dad was working on a copper mine up there. And um, at the end of our road was this river, and it was a really fast-flowing river called the Bovo River that flowed into uh, the the town just up the street. And I'd always looked at the Bovo River and just thought, oh, I really want to get across that river. And I was only five, and it was really scary, but I thought, I really want to do it. My dad said, one day, this is it. So he stood out in the middle of the river. It was Quite wide, it would be like from, from here to the back row there. And he said, come on across. And so I started walking across. And, um, and, and I remember there was big boulders and I was walking over and they were getting slippery and the water was getting higher up to my waist and then my chest. And then I slipped over and, and I went under. And I was really, really scared. And, uh, and w- within seconds, Dad was there and he grabbed my arm and pulled me out. And uh, then he put me on his back and we walked together across the river. Now, I remember that, uh, clear as crystal. And uh, maybe you remember times, too, that, uh, that you've, you've, you've been rescued. Been, you've been in this time uh, where you thought, oh, I don't know if I'm going to get out of this. Um, but I've called the sermon, When in Trouble, Call Dad. All right? So, When in Trouble, Call Dad. And it stands for D, Fear Doubts, A for Assurance, and D for deliverance. So I call for dad. Now today we'll learn from Psalm 3 that when David was in a whole lot of trouble, he cried out to God, his heavenly father. So please open your Bibles to Psalm 3 and let's read together. So reading from Psalm 3, it's only eight verses. A Psalm of David. When he fled from his son Absalom. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me many many are saying of me God will not deliver him but you Lord are a shield around me my glory the one who lifts my head high i call out to the lord and he answers me from his holy mountain i lie down and sleep i wake again because the lord sustains me i will not fear though tens of thousands assail me on every side arise lord Deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Psalm 3. Now, the title actually gives the context. You know that this is not just just a songwriter going, oh, I've got to come up with a new song for tomorrow. This is uh, born out of a real situation. It says at the top of the psalm, when he fled from his son Absalom. So it's really, really good. We can look at this story, uh, this psalm, and know where it was taking place. See, Absalom was a son of King David, and he'd staged a conspiracy, an uprising. Now, it's really interesting reading, and, and maybe later on you can actually uh, read along in 2 Samuel 15. But Absalom, he'd, he'd stolen the hearts of the, of the people of Israel with his good looks. He had this big, long hair. It was actually like a national holiday almost where he'd cut his hair and everyone would come to look and they'd weigh it and stuff. This is what this guy was like. And he had charisma and he was pretty sneaky too. There's a lot of subterfuge going on. Now we're reading in 2 Samuel 15 that a messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. Now so began David's humiliating exit from Jerusalem. Verse 1. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Now the whole of Psalm 3, you know it, like it's written... Pretty sure it was written at the end of this really bad day. It's written by a really desperate man. David looks at his situation and laments. I am undone. His friends, his people, and most of his army have deserted him. His enemies gather and taunt him. God is not with you anymore, they say. In 2 Samuel, you read that Shimei, a relative of Saul, is giving David and his men absolute curry on the road from Jerusalem. In verse 6, we read, He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed, Shimei said, Get out! Get out, you murderer! You scoundrel! The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because. You are a murderer. Now, David really was terrified. You can see it in the psalm. Was God really with him anymore? Was this all part of God's plan to depose King David and usher in his son Absalom as a new king? Like what happened to Saul. And you remember the story of Saul, right? That, that he was the first king of Israel. And David, uh, Saul wanted to kill David because Saul was going, No, no, I want to be king. And, uh, and it wasn't God's will because Saul was disobedient. David was also all aware, all too aware of his own sin, his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. David may have asked himself, am I being punished? Am I now cursed by God? We know that because in 2 Samuel 15, 9, it says, then Abishai, that's a." Uh, David's command. one of David's commanders, son of Zeruiah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. Now let's stop there. Let's just be honest. If you were David, does this sound like a good idea? And be honest. There's a guy, he's taunting you, he's throwing stones. Would you go, hmm, sounds like a good idea. A bit of therapy, a little bit of chicken soup for the soul. Or does David just take it? Let's read on. But the king said, What does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? He says to Abishai, If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, Curse David, who can ask, Why do you do this? Then David said to Abishai and all his officials, My son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more then this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse. For the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing today instead of his curse. Okay, let's, that last little bit. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. So David felt cursed. Do you see this? David basically accepts Shimei's insults and says everything that happens is God's will. I, I deserve this, he would have thought. Maybe I am cursed. Now, when, when bad things happen to you, how do you respond? Do you fall into the trap of thinking you haven't been good enough for God and now he punishes you? A little bit like karma, you know? Good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. I've done something wrong, now God's punishing me. Now, Alistair Begg says our suffering isn't about cause and effect, but achieving God's goals. Now, this is really important. He says, start by understanding that God is all good and all powerful and has an eternal plan to create a people who are his very own. Okay, so, so like when, when you get in strife yourself, and, and there, are, there are numbers of you, know, you that I know have been through a really hard time even in the last year, even the last few months. And it's so easy just to get absorbed by what's going on in your life, the struggle you're, that's going on. And you say, why, God? And um, we, but, but it's, what Alistair Begg is saying is it's not about necessarily about how you're feeling and your particular strife. That God's got this plan, and he's executing that plan. His grand goal is to make uh, his people into an image of his son and to bring them safely to glory. And he will do whatever it takes to achieve those objectives, even if it means permitting temporary sorrows. Begg believes that suffering achieves these four things for Christians. It brings commonality. Now, that sounds a bit strange, right? But Forrest Gump would call it, poo happens. You remember in Forrest Gump he goes, well, he doesn't quite say that, but it's PG here. Bad thing, the suffering that happens, the bad thing that happens, is just the reality of living in a fallen, imperfect world. We all experience pain, sickness, and grief. And the righteous and the unrighteous alike see the sun and feel the rain. We read in Matthew 5. The righteous and the unrighteous alike live with the effects of suffering. So that's number one. Number two, suffering is corrective. And you, and you read that in, um, in Hebrews uh, 12, so just the passage that we read this morning, a little bit after that from verse 5. As a father disciplines his son in order for them to know and do the right thing, so God sometimes uses suffering to get us back on the right path when we are going astray. Maybe, you know, maybe some of you know that in your life, when you've gone astray and then something, something bad happens that actually drives you back to God. Suffering is constructive, is number three. Not only can suffering correct us, but it can also build character within us. Who can forget those words of James? You know, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you uh, endure suffering of many kinds, because it builds perseverance and builds character, which goes to hope. Number four, and finally, suffering is glorifying. God always works through suffering to bring Himself glory even years, decades, or generations later. So, yeah, while we're suffering, we often don't see the big picture. And, and we may never, ever know it. But it's amazing how many times the, the suffering or the loss that happens to you gets used in some way that you weren't expecting later on in life. Like if you've lost somebody, like a parent as... As you know, when you're younger, you'll be able to empathize with someone else, when that happens, uh, to them. And uh, it, that would never happen unless you'd experience it yourself. So God has a big plan. Now the Christian believes in a God who hanged, bloodied and beaten on a Roman cross. And he answers the proud, defiant questions of man when they say to him, "God, do you really know about suffering?" And the cry from the cross of Jesus, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken that you and I might be forgiven. Not that we would have all the answers to our questions. He doesn't ask us to answer all the questions. He asks us to trust him. Do you trust him today? And if not, do you trust in yourself so he's asking, like, that, that, would be, that would be, in a nutshell, that would be the whole point of today, is like, in suffering, you are asked to trust God. That's it. Like, I could stop now. <laughs> but I, I can keep going as well. Um, <laughs> so I will. So I had this broom. All right, now, let's say I want this broom to stand up. Um, and if, if I'm looking at, and, and I'm standing on my hand, if I'm looking at my hand, I cannot get, for the life of me, I cannot get this broom to stand up. Sorry, kids. <laughs> but what do I need to do to be able to make this broom stand up? Yeah, I have to look up. So if I, oh, oh, dear, sorry. If I look up I, at the head, I can actually make this thing stand up. And it's a really good picture. Try this at home, kids. Normally only get told not to try it at home, right? But it's a really good reminder for us not to look at our hands and try and solve all the problems ourselves, but to look up, look up at the cross, look up at what Jesus has done for us. We're in the midst of those trials. Um, remarkably, David chose to trust God even at this terribly low point in his life. Was it a coincidence that David fled through the Mount of Olives? from Jerusalem. So as he escaped, he went through the Mount of Olives and there's even a part of the garden there, it's like a cave, and in it is an olive press, which is kind of weird, like it's a a, a big stone dish and it's got these big rollers, you know, two or three rollers. And the idea is that you turn those rollers around, you put the olives in it and they get pressed and squeezed and then all the oil pours out. So that's a And the name of an olive press in Hebrew is Gethsemane. So quite possibly David, well, we know David went through the Mount of Olives and he might have even gone past that same part of the garden where Jesus himself was the night he was arrested. And when he was wrestling, um, wrestling with, I wouldn't call it doubt, but he was, Jesus was afraid. He was very afraid of what was coming up. I'll I'll read it out. It says in Mark 14, Jesus began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. And then this, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, to be a Christian means to be a follower of Jesus. That's what it means. So will we be faithful when trouble comes? Will we cry out like David in Psalm 51 for a willing spirit, that's a Holy Spirit, to sustain us despite our human tendency to give up when our spirit is willing but the flesh is weak? Now, now it's kind of, when, when we talk about this, not everyone has been through a tough time. Some of you just go, yeah, I'm 48, still haven't had a really tough time yet. I haven't had terrible illness. I haven't had massive financial loss. I haven't had um, catastrophic relationship failure yet. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, there's, um, what, what do you do then? Like, if you don't know suffering... What what's, what's, What is your role in all this? What, what can you learn from Psalm 3? Well, there's, there's probably two things. One is that you've got people in, in church, brothers and sisters around you, who have, who are in the middle of, of, of a terrible trial and encourage them. You know, on David's trip out of Jerusalem, there were people, sure there were people like Shimei throwing rocks at him, you know, people betraying him all over the place. But there are also others who came up and said, Here's some donkeys to ride on. Here's a whole lot of supplies. Food, water. Here, David, I'll come and join you, even though I'm probably going to die because I do this. So, so one thing you can do is to join, walk with someone in their pain. The other thing you can do is to wait for, wait for it to come. Wait for that bad thing to happen. And what do you do while you're waiting? You get close to God. You do those things... That we're not good at doing, not always good at doing, like getting up and reading the Word, because the Word is God talking to you. That's His Holy Spirit working in you, praying, and doing the other things that God says in, in His Word that makes you a follower of Him. So there's two things you can do if you're waiting to suffer. <laughs> now, um, the, the next section, it turns. And uh, you've got to love the word but. You know when someone says something nice to you and they say but? You go, oh. Well, this is the opposite. This is like the bad stuff has, has happened. There's been David's fear, David's anxiety. In verse 3 it says, But you, Lord, are a shield around me. If you're a soldier in Israel, you pretty probably carried around like a a shield strapped on your arm. It wasn't very big. It was like this sort of thing. And, you, and you'd hold it like that. And you'd be, you'd be in hand-to-hand combat with someone. You'd put up your shield, and then you'd, you'd be doing your thing. There's another kind of shield uh, commonly used in Israel, and it was massive. It was really, really big. And uh, it would be almost as big as the, the soldiers themselves. And it was used, um, it was used when, the, when you're going to attack a city. So, so if you go up to a city... You've got people pouring hot oil on you, rocks, arrows, the whole thing. And uh, and the big shield was there to defend you from the attack of the city around you, from the defenders in the, in the city above. And uh, that's, the, that's the word, that's the, the term that, that, uh, that um, David's talking about when he says, you are a shield around me. And you needed this big shield, um, And you need to follow your general into battle going forwards using your shield as protection. Now, this is the bit. Your shield is useless if you had to then turn and run, right? And your back was exposed to the enemy. So the shield was only good as you're going into battle. You had to go forward through, through the pain, through the fear, and follow your general. And that's the picture that you get from this phrase, Lord, you are a shield around me. It's not just like, ah, thanks, it's like an umbrella. It's actually you going into battle, you facing your fear, and you persevering through it with God's strength and God's help, knowing that he's right there with you. Um, Now, when David refers uh, in that verse also to being to God as his glory, he admits that his own glory, his his own identity as that powerful king as that Facebook family guy, you know, with a happy family, um, with uh, subjects that love him. <coughs> All that's gone to pieces. He's by himself pretty much with a, with a, with a few hundred men. And, uh, and now he's saying, you, Lord, are my glory. It's not about me anymore. It's about, it's about you, Lord. You are the thing. You're <laughs> the only good thing. But you are the good thing. You are powerful. You are strong. And you can help me get through this. So, David had to relocate his own glory to God because David was bankrupt. Our Heavenly Father is so much more than roadside assistance when we're in trouble. Yeah? So, like, sometimes the only time we call out to God, it's a classic movie scene thing, right? You're on the plane, the plane goes down, oh, God, help me. And you think, hang on. Um, God is so much more than just when you're in strife. And it's really good for us to remember that, um, that God is our glory. And if there's good things that we've made our glory, you know, our jobs, our family, whatever that is, instead of God, they, they kind of become idols. But at this point, David's saying, God, you are my glory. And finally, in verse 3, it says, David prays to God as the one who lifts my head high. He knows that the, his heavenly Father father, sorry, is proud of him. He loves him as a son and gives David confidence once again. Spurgeon says of verse 3, what a divine trio of mercies is contained in this verse. Defense for the defenseless, glory for the despised, and joy for the comfortless. I don't know about you, but like how, how do you go from verse 1 and 2 going how how, how you know how many of my foes, you know, how there's all this bad stuff around me? And then how does David then turn around and go, but Lord, you are my glory, my shield. And verse 4 might actually be the answer. It says, I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. Now, uh, Pastor Tim Keller is convinced at this point, and I'm not sure like, uh, if he's drawing a long bow, but I, I think he's right. Pastor Tim Keller is convinced at this point that David would have been reminded of Genesis 15. When God said to Abram, Do not be afraid. I am your shield, your very great reward. So you, you, we're, we're asking ourselves, what, what, what makes you turn from the downward step? You know, the, the fear and the anxiety. And he looks up and he calls out to God and he answers from his holy mountain. Well, Keller thinks it's because he's, he's remembering that time when Abram was told to cut up. I think it was a, as a heifer and a ram and, and a goat and he cuts them in half and he lays them out on either side and a couple of birds too, but he doesn't chop them. Um, and in, if you're in Old Testament times and you want to have a covenant or maybe a treaty with somebody, you would say, all right, let's cut up those animals and then both of us, if we're going to walk in between those animals. And that's our, our promise that uh, we will stick to this treaty or this promise Otherwise, may it be to us as those animals are. That's literally what, what it was all about. So, you generally you, you took your vows pretty honest, <laughs> pretty, um, pretty seriously in those days. Um, but um, instead of both people, Abram walking together with God to say, Okay, God, you're going to look after me, you're going to provide me with an heir, you're going to make me a father of many nations. Abram was doubting this. He's going, God, how can this be? I'm like really old. Nothing's happening. I, I, I don't see it, God. And, and God says, he puts uh, Abram in a deep sleep. And Abram sees his fire pot go through the middle. And it's a symbol of God. It's a theophany. It's like a, it's a visual representation of, of God on earth going through those animals. saying, And God's saying, I will do this. doesn't matter what you do, Abram. I will achieve this. And that's the assurance that David gets when he looks up at that holy mountain and he goes, God is faithful. From Abram to Isaac and Jacob, through Joseph, the time in Israel, through the people coming through the desert, the whole shebang, God is faithful. And David knows that. And that's what makes him go, wow, I can, God is with me. I can do this. I can do whatever needs to happen, whatever God's will is. Um, so... Looking towards Jerusalem and the tabernacle would have been a huge encouragement that God was always going to be faithful to David. So the inner peace and resolve to go forward, knowing that God was on his side, enabled David to say in verse 5, I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear though tens of thousands assail me on every side. And literally... I'm not sure. Literally, that's what happened. There were thousands and thousands of troops from all over Israel, and they came to try and destroy David and his last remaining band of men. But he says, I will not fear. Now, for us, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and his victory over sin and death is the ultimate assurance that God loves us and his children and has forgiven us and assures us of our hope in this life and the life to come. Okay, so we've done, we've looked at the... David facing his doubts. We've seen the assurance that God gives. What was the last one? Deliverance. (laughs) So deliverance. Arise, Lord David prays in verse 7. Deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Now I must admit... Uh, these words sound very harsh to our ears. It's a, peaceful, it's a peaceful island that we live on. It's Tasmania. Why would you talk about striking enemies on the jaw and breaking the teeth of the wicked? That's not a very nice thing to do. And uh, we, we don't get it because we weren't, we weren't David. But for David, he desperately needed deliverance because he was hunted by his, this huge army. But in verse 8, he also prays for blessings for all the people of Israel. He knows Absalom will be a terrible king. So David pleads for justice and for victory so that Israel would be rid of the threat of David's own son, Absalom, and live in the blessing of God's peace. And that's exactly what happened. So it's really good homework if you want to read uh, 2 Samuel 15 and 16. It goes on. Absalom's army was miraculously defeated by David's mini-army. They had this big battle in the forest um, and Absalom is like sees David's men and goes ah, gets on his uh, gets on his uh, mule and his hair, his beautiful hair, gets caught up in these branches, and he gets stuck and he's hanging there, and his, his, his mule's gone, and um and one of uh, one of David's commanders Joab actually comes in and puts three spears through Absalom's heart, even though David didn't want that because David loved his son Absalom. Um, but it, it, um, it kind of had to happen. The rebellion had to stop. And it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a terrible and a bloodthirsty way to finish, and there were there something like 20,000 people uh, dead at the end of this battle. Um, so David's kingdom was restored, and his people did enjoy a time of peace under his reign. So what do we learn from this? Does Psalm 3 teach that each person will be delivered from their hour of trial? Like if all you knew was Psalm 3 and the story of David, would you then conclude, hey, every time, every bad thing that happens, all I have to do is ask God and he will deliver me? Do you think that's true? No way. Uh, It may be. Um, Maybe you will be healed of your pain and illness or your broken relationships will be repaired. Or your mortgage miraculously cancelled and your bills paid. Just, you you can't ask for these things. But God may say yes, we may say no, we may say wait. Depending on what his will is for you and his grand scheme. But we do have full assurance on the main thing, just like David. That God is with us and that we have a clear hope for the future. Now, Hebrews 11 reminds us of those Old Testament heroes of the faith, including David who were witnesses of God's faithfulness. They weren't very heroic, some of them. Some of them were just faithful, and their lives were absolute misery because of it. But they did stay faithful to God. But Hebrews says it best. Um, therefore, since we are surrounded by these cloud of such a great cloud of witnesses, so these faithful Old Testament people, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. All right, that's it. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So when in trouble, call dad. You can trust him. Amén.